UpperCervicalDocs.com. You go right to the internet. It's a, it's a Google, Google search to figure out where you're going to get the pizza or what pizza is best or anything of that nature. Um, I began to notice this behavior then, and, it, and it's something that's interesting because it, it permeates through all things that we do. Um, if you look back at your recent big purchases, I would imagine that most of your large purchases you investigated on the internet prior to actually executing, and then quite possibly some of your recent purchases were actually made over the internet. Understanding that, I began to see that people were also turning to the internet for their healthcare information. This is Dr. Paul Hamburg of UpperCervicalDocs.com. And here's an interview I did with Dr. Sean Dill. Dr. Dill is a 1995 graduate of Logan College of Chiropractic. For eight years, Dr. Dill practiced in the country of Costa Rica, where along with establishing what many consider to be the largest upper cervical practice in the world, he also authored the law that regulates the practice of chiropractic in that country. Since returning to the United States, Dr. Dill has become a noted authority in upper cervical specific. He is the co-founder of the Specific Chiropractic Center, which now operates multiple knee chest upper cervical specific clinics and the That's Something coaching program along with its annual seminar called Synapse. He is a full-time member of the faculty at Life Chiropractic College West, serving as the director of the Institute for Advanced Care and Chiropractic. He is a highly sought-after speaker, making numerous international appearances each year. In this interview, we discuss how he became a chiropractor, how he got introduced to upper cervical, how he went from failure to success in his first clinic in Costa Rica, how to market yourself using the power of the Internet, and what makes his That Something coaching program unique, plus much more. This is one of the meatiest interviews I've done, and you should really listen to it more than once and take notes. Well, I've actually been was well traveled even in my in my youth. I was born in Kansas City, Missouri, um, but around my first birthday, we moved. My family moved to Okinawa, Japan, and that's more or less where I grew up. My father was in, in the Marine Corps, so from Okinawa, we moved to New Bern, North Carolina, and uh, grew up in the middle section of my life. And from New Bern, we moved to Fort Wayne, Indiana. And from Fort Wayne, I, I attended uh, college at Indiana University, then to Logan College of Chiropractic. And from Logan College of Chiropractic, I moved to San Jose, Costa Rica, where I first started out in practice. And then from San Jose, Costa Rica, moved to Pleasanton, California, where I'm currently now living. Well, you really have moved around a lot. Do you feel like you are uh, where you're going to be, or is this just another stopover? Um, I think it's the next to last stopover. I think that probably at some point in my life I will move one more time to wherever it is that I will officially retire. Uh-huh. Okay, uh, so your uh, your dad was uh, was in the Marines. Uh, was your mother a housewife, or did uh, did she work? She was a teacher, actually. Uh-huh. That's been where I got some of my, some of my teaching stuff. Uh-huh. Uh, are you uh, are you married? I'm married. Um, my wife's name is Vanessa, and I met her in Costa Rica. So she's uh, originally from Nicaragua, and we actually have two children. Um, we have uh, Japanese names, Mitsu and Miyoko, and they were both born in uh, San Jose, Costa Rica. Uh-huh. Well, what motivated you to become a chiropractor? 
Actually, my motivation to become a chiropractor was my cousin. Um, when I was in high school, and, you know, making a decision about career and where you're going to go with your life, he really inspired me a lot and, and motivated me in my decision to become a chiropractor. You know, it, it is important to know that was in the 80s, and that was a time when all chiropractors were doing really great. So he had a, a lifestyle that was very well supported through his practice. He had several offices, and you know, that was in the chiropractic heyday. That did influence me somewhat, to be to be honest. Um, and then I went on to, I, I knew that that's what I wanted to do, and I went on to have an accident when playing soccer, and then uh, ended up having an experience with a chiropractor. I had been punched in the head. Um, I was jumping up for a ball, and the goalkeeper had come out and punched me in the head. And I took a punch the ball, missed the ball, hit me in the head, and I fell, kind of flipped over in the air and landed on my head, and I was knocked unconscious. Wow. And interesting for where I would eventually end up, and, and I'd like to say, oh, I just totally made this connection at the time, but I didn't. But as a result of that, I had um, low back pain. I landed on my head. I got hit in the head and landed on my head, and then I really couldn't walk. I had, I had like, sciatic pain and low back pain, and I couldn't go from sitting down to standing up very well. And so my cousin has recommended me to a chiropractor, and my cousin um, practiced uh, full spine. I went to the full spine chiropractor, and, and they had helped me in my recovery. Um, then I went on to Indiana University, and I was studying there. And I was having a lot of fun. Indiana is a very fun school. And I was enrolled in the pre-med, or the pre-chiropractic program, um, and was moving along doing my task. And after my two years, um, I was ready to go on to chiropractic college. So I decided I was having so much fun that I sort of decided I was going to be in the pre-med program. So I should just do pre-med. And as soon as my cousin got word of that, he um, got into his private plane. He had a plane. He flew down to Wilmington, Indiana, and he picked me up, and he took me to Davenport, and he, he showed me the, the campus, and then flew me back up. He practiced in Milwaukee, so he went to Milwaukee and sat me down in his office, and, and we had a frank discussion about um, what I was doing and what I needed to be doing, and he basically just told me I needed to, to get myself into chiropractic college. Uh, uh, I was making up, I was inventing the fact that I wanted to be a medical doctor, which is true. Um, and I told him that I was kind of really didn't like Davenport, Iowa so much, and he said it didn't matter that there was chiropractic colleges in a lot of different places, that I just needed to get into chiropractic college. And so um, one year later, I was in St. Louis. We still had a proximity to Bloomington, and I thought um, the epicenter of fun was located to the world. So I ended up there, and um, that's where I eventually got my, my degree from. My chiropractic education came from a lot of places outside of there, including Dynamic Essentials, which I found the first trimester uh, while I was there, began going down to, to DE, listening to all of those speakers that, that spoke at DE. From, actually, from first trimester until I graduated, I never missed one DE. Uh, I began missing DEs when I moved to Costa Rica. And then through DE is how I was exposed to Dr. Michael Kale and then began to make the journey from St. Louis over to Spartanburg um, to complete my kale certification then, and that's actually been how I how I really discovered upper cervical. Then, thankfully, was ironically, too, um, I did end up spending an awful lot of time up in Davenport, Iowa. Uh, I became close friends with Andy Roberts, 
and would go up and see Atlanta and, and, and be exposed to a lot of the history and the, the, the green books and, and got my, my grassroots information up there. So that's actually, I got my degree from Logan, but I got most of my chiropractic education from everywhere but. I'm <clears throat> talking to more and more graduates of Logan who went to DE than I think I've known life students who went to DE. I'm amazed at the number of Midwestern students that uh, end up going down to DE. You know, um, it, it honestly is, it's, you know, and you can see this in a lot of different areas. As we spoke earlier, you know, I, I had a, a significant portion of my upbringing in the South. And my, my grandmother um, still lives to this day in, in, in the mountains of North Carolina in the Asheville, Hendersonville area. And, you know, what, like when you, when you live in the South and you, you, one of the things that's very funny from my travels, because I've, I've lived in different parts of the country, but you, you eat, it's very normal. Every meal you, you drink this concoction, which is iced tea, super saturated with sugar and with sweet tea. But when you move out of the South, it's, it's extremely difficult to find that. Um, and, and if, if you've had a taste of it, then you gain an appreciation when you don't have it. And I think that what happens, though, a lot of people in the South, it's just that that might as well just be water. And so I think that the, a lot of the students that were at life at that time, um, that was just like water to them. It was, it was something that maybe they had to do or that it was, it was just so there, whereas someone that was really thirsty for it, um, when you're not exposed to it and you're at Logan, and then you find that, when you, if you've never had sweet tea and then you find sweet tea, then it's something that you long for. I, mean, I know that if I'm, 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 I have a trip planned that, that we're flying over to Miami from San Francisco here in a, about a month, and, and I could have taken a direct flight, uh, or I could have had a stopover in Charlotte, and I know that at Charlotte there's a Bojangles, and I can get some biscuits and gravy and sweet tea, so I would actually rather have the stop in Charlotte than take the direct flight. <laughs> so I think it's similar to that. I think that the students at Logan that knew that they were looking for a chiropractic answer, when they went to DE, that satisfied that thirst, and then it was something that just became something that became part of their, their, their fabric, and you had to have it. And the fact that you didn't get it every day fueled that because we began to look forward to then that quarterly meeting, even though it meant we were going to drive eight hours to get there. Um, it was something that, that we were looking forward to versus something that we, we just had to do because we were exposed to it, you know, every every Friday at assembly. Uh, yeah, that's actually a pretty good analogy. What well, what year did you graduate? I graduated in nineteen ninety five. Okay. Um, did you move to Costa Rica immediately after graduation and open up your practice? I sure did. You know, when I was in school and docs, um, I graduated around that time. It's actually interesting is I've never really heard people talk about this, but as I was sat in class in 1993-94, this was the advent of HMOs and PPOs, or managed care. And so this was sort of a scary time for chiropractic because the, the, we didn't really know what that was going to look like. And a lot of people thought that managed care meant that there was going to be a gatekeeper, and that was a very popular word. You have a gatekeeper, and they would determine where all of the patients went. And the assumption was that the gatekeeper would obviously be a medical doctor, and then they would determine that no patients went to chiropractors. And for a lot of people, they sort of painted it as the end of chiropractic. So as I sat in class, um, 
we were leaving the heyday of the 80s, and we're in that transition. The heyday had sort of begun to dry up or was drying up, and we were moving into this thing called managed care, and people really didn't know what that was going to look like. But from my perspective, it didn't look very good. Um, if you weren't going to join these groups and, and be a part of the, the, the preferred provider groups, then you were going to have a really hard time uh, really making it. And that was how it was painted to me. So I, I didn't want to have anything to do with that. And I was young and at that time not married, so I just figured I would go to another country. And I was originally going out to go to Nicaragua um, with my roommate, who at the time, he, he had... Um, some connections there, and we began to explore that idea. And, and interestingly, all of the people in Nicaragua actually told us, "Well, if you if you like Nicaragua for any reason at all, the political climate is not very advantageous to coming here. We would recommend you go to Costa Rica. You'll love it." And so I scheduled a trip to Costa Rica. We went out there, we checked it out, and then and what, what what they had said was absolutely, absolutely true. It was an absolutely beautiful country. We just fell in love with it, and I went out there and opened up my practice. Also, a lot of people have heard that story during my first year in practice there. It was absolutely terrible. I didn't speak the language. Um, I really didn't understand, even you know, from, from an upper cervical perspective, how to manage patients and how to, how to really behave myself, not, not from a like, behave myself as a doctor, but behave myself clinically, when to adjust and when not to adjust. Um, I had a, a notion for trying to adjust other segments. And that's something I hear all the time now is I really can appreciate the upper cervical work. So what I'll do is be do upper cervical and then, you know, I'll just address L5 or the pelvis. And I think that's a natural thought process. And I always say that's sort of my chiropractic immaturity. And so I thought that would seem like a smart thing to do. And so my results were also limited by the fact that I didn't have the discipline to absolutely understand and respect the, the work that we do. And so at the end of one whole year of being in Costa Rica, I was seeing four people a day. And financially, I was in a, in a really tough spot. I had pretty much maxed out all of my United States credit cards and was having a really hard time making ends meet there. And had met my wife and had a discussion with her. And, and you know, I had said to her, you know, basically, we, you know, we probably could just move back to the United States and, you know, getting in a PPO probably is not that bad. And she was actually the one that encouraged me. She said, no, you know, we, we, we didn't come this far to quit. Um, let's give it one more try. This actually occurred on New Year's Eve after my first year of being in Costa Rica. Um, basically, on that whole that whole holiday, because Chris, Costa Rica sort of shuts down for the Christmas holiday, and so because it had shut down, I couldn't even see my four patients a, a day that I had, and, and I had, like, no money then during that Christmas. So that Christmas was one of my worst Christmas ever, and no gifts. You know, we, we had only rice and beans to eat for the month, and I was ready to just, just pack it up. And she encouraged me to, to stay one and press hard one more time. And then that second year is actually when we exploded. And by the end of the second year, we were seeing over 200 patients a day. And so things really took off. We opened our second clinic down there in Costa Rica. And our, our second clinic that we opened, um, when we opened it, the first week was already seeing over 100 patients a day just from the overflow of the, of the main clinic. And one of the key things is that my wife had helped me to get on this television show. And that was also a, a, quite a, a funny experience because my my Spanish wasn't very good. And so I had sort of rehearsed, uh, I, had, I had some rehearsed some lines, sort of like uh, like for today when, when we were preparing for the interview, you give the, the person an idea of some of the things that you might ask. And so 
I had I had an idea of what they would ask, and I had prepared my Spanish answers to those questions. And then when I got up there on live television, the, the, what they asked me was nothing like what I thought they would ask. Uh-huh. And that didn't deter me because I just answered back the questions that I had, the answers that I had rehearsed. <laughs> but it didn't go at all with what they had asked. So the, the person was extremely confused about what I was doing. Later on, we became, her and I became good friends, the interviewer and myself, we became really good friends, and she she was widely popular in Costa Rica and, and was largely responsible for helping me to build my practice there by putting me on her show, and she told me, she said, you know, when I first had you on my television show, I had no clue what you said at all, but what I did know is that you had a passion for something and that you had a message that you wanted to share, and so I was determined to keep inviting you back until we understood it. That's really what sort of built my practice. Wow. Now, would you? Was that the difference between the um, uh, between the first twelve months and the second twelve months? Was just it was exposure, or were there other factors? You know, I think it, I think I think exposure was, it had something to do with it, but I think the exposure really came from a mindset of, of commitment. Um, the people that that have heard me speak in different areas know that I didn't know this at the time. But they're, they're, I'm, a, I'm a big believer in, in things like the law of attraction, um, the ability to, to form and shape your own reality. Um, a lot of the work that Joe Dispenza talks about, I'm a big fan of his and his book, Evolve Your Brain, and, and those concepts. Um, you know, I think that because of my chiropractic immaturity, we, we're conditioned in, in chiropractic college and we're in we, we become sort of jaded. We're sort of conditioned to, to be very defensive about our stance and our chiropractic model. And, and we like to act like we have confidence, but the more I work with students, I actually get to see that inside of that, and they're like an M&M. If you crack that hard shell inside, there's a lot of confusion, and I had that. You know, I, I wanted chiropractic to sort of be how I wanted it to be. I wanted to form chiropractic. I wasn't really willing to, to allow chiropractic to be chiropractic. I had my own ideas. And that's even coming from someone that, that was very well read in, in the green books and had been to DE. I don't know what that is. It's 12 straight times. Um, I had I used to, to, to sit and have lunch and conversations with, with Jimmy Gregg and John Hoffman. These guys were people that heavily influenced me. But still in that arena, I still sort of you know, I, I had my ideas about what it should be. I was humbled hugely then after one year in practice, and I see this too in a lot of young docs that go out and practice. You get humbled quickly when you discover that chiropractic isn't, you can't force chiropractic to be what you want it to be. And so I had to sort of take take stake or take stock in, in where I was, and then my wife was a huge influence in, in getting me to believe in what it is that I did. In fact, at that moment, she probably believed more in it than I did. She was the one that told me, let's, let's press hard one more time. So um, I have uh, read and I've heard that your uh, practice in Costa Rica was one of the largest in the world. Just uh, uh, You've kind of told us a little bit about how big it was, but uh, how big was it exactly? If you include all the clinics, how many patients a day were being seen? That's hard for me to say with all the clinics right off the top of my head. Most of the, most of the time people talk about our main clinic where that, that was the clinic where I worked in San Jose. Um, I'll, I'll work it through for, for the sake of the question. Um, that clinic we averaged during that first year we were at four patients a day. At the end of that year we were up over 200. 
And from that point until we left, we probably averaged about 225 patient visits a day. Mm. I worked for five and a half days a week. Um, the most that we saw in a day was 300. And it usually, in order to do that, it, we were talking about a 12-hour day. Um, by that time, when we were moving along at a, at a good clip, I was doing a, a strict upper cervical um, knee chest solid headpiece protocol where we were pre and post checking with the Titron and if anybody got it adjusted they had a 20 minute post rest we had 11 rest days in there and I had a ton of help and that was sort of what made the system go and human resource there was, was quite affordable and so I had people that moved people through the system the doctor basically just stood in one spot and scanned made the determination and then adjusted if need be and then from there, someone would take the patient and put them in the rest bed, bring them back when their when their rest period was over, and the doctor would post-check them. Um, I did that just continually, and I was telling someone the other day, at the time that I was leaving Costa Rica, there were a lot of places, a lot of tourist places that I hadn't, hadn't even seen. Hmm. So I I didn't go into to the tourist places and see the rainforest and the volcano until basically like the last month since I was coming back to the United States. I mean, I just literally worked six days a week. That's, that's pretty much all that we ever did wow. when we were there. We had uh, four other clinics then that operated. They probably averaged around 100 patient visits a day at each of those. So if we said 400 plus the 225, so it's probably around 450 patient visits a day that were, were being seen um, in that atmosphere. We had six DCs and two MDs. Um, the MDs did all of our new patient exams and our re-exams, all of the medical portion, the diagnosis, um, all of that aspect they took care of. And um, Where did the other DCs come from? Did you recruit them, or did they come down because they wanted to come to Costa Rica? How did you uh, get in, how, how did you develop a relationship with uh, the other DCs? Mostly we had to recruit them, and that was probably, honestly, one of the most difficult aspects of that that business was getting DCs that were interested in coming to Costa Rica who practiced or had a knowledge of upper cervical and could somewhat speak Spanish. Um, it was due to that experience that we developed our coaching program because I recognize there's a huge need out there. It's really hard for docs that are successful then to create some sort of a system through which they're able to bring other students into their system and hire them. Um, students that are trained, you, you would want someone that comes, that's coming in to sort of understand um, and hopefully to completely understand what it is that you're doing from a clinical perspective. And that was one of the hardest aspects for me because I would say that of all of the doctors that I've ever hired while I was in Costa Rica, probably only two or three of them actually had an upper cervical experience prior to going there. And then upon leaving the office, um, there's probably two or three of them, and not necessarily the same two or three that were coming in, but probably only two or three of them that then still practice upper cervical, which to me says that then during that, then during that time that they were working for me, their heart wasn't completely into it. Mm. It was a job. Yeah. Well, why did you decide to leave Costa Rica? Well, one of the biggest influences in that um, were, were my two children. Um, they they were at an age where they were going into um, into elementary school. They were attending a private school, and the private school that they were attending was costing me 
um, around $24,000 a year for for them to go and get an education, which I was seeing was less than what they would get in a public school here in the United States. Um, the private school that they went to was one of the best schools in the country. And so another thing that was just sort of disturbing to me, honestly, is the, the lifestyle that they were beginning to live. It's not it's not that difficult to live a, a lavish lifestyle in Costa Rica. And, and I always refer to that movie Man on Fire with Denzel Washington where you have the driver that takes the girl to school and picks her up. And, and it, was, it, was, it was really strange, but this is one of the things that really impacted me. Is one day my, I heard my oldest daughter talking to some friends, and she told her friend, my housekeeper is going to do this or do this. My housekeeper will pick that up. Huh. And I thought, well, you don't have a housekeeper. We do. And I didn't grow up like that. And I, I, I began at that point to, to begin to consider to, to leave Costa Rica and transition into something else at that point um, so that my, my children could grow up with and what I personally had was a personal opinion on it that I, that I personally thought would be a better upbringing for them in the United States. Wow. Well, how old are your kids now? They are 9 and 11. Okay. Um, well, uh, how difficult was it for you to uh, get started again in California? Well, it, when I first came back, you know, it was it was difficult on a, on a lot of different fronts. Maybe not the same fronts that um, the, 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 your intent and the question. But when I came back to the United States, um, I had not taken Part Three nor Part Four of the National Board. And this, that was also, my life was full of all of these really strange ironies. But my class at Logan was the first class to ever be offered part four. Hmm. And so one of the things about that was if you signed up to take the, the test, they didn't really know what the parameters were. And, and I'm obviously not a member of the National Board of Chiropractic Examiners, but my understanding is, is that everyone who took that test passed it because there was no established standard to grade on any sort of curve. Hmm that sort of set the standard, and so that was really dumb that I didn't take it, but my intention uh, at the time, I was 23 when I graduated, uh, my intention was to never come back, mm. and so I didn't think I needed part three or part four, and I didn't take it, so when I decided to move back to the United States, that was one of the most um, urgent and pressing things, is I had to take part three and part four, and that's actually been what led me to Life Chiropractic College. Um, I had had discussions with Dr. Klum about taking a job at the college so that I could do something while I was getting myself prepared to actually hold a chiropractic license. And so um, he was gracious enough to give me a job at the college and allow me to, to begin to teach in the interim while I, I got, my, um, I got my, my boards under my belt and then eventually got licensed. And so that mean, meant I had to teach some non-chiropractic related classes, but um, that was something that just sort of gave me my introduction into the teaching world. What year was this? Hmm, that was five years ago. Okay. Uh, did you um, did you sell your practices in Costa Rica before you moved up here? Yes. You did. How was that difficult to do? Well, no, that wasn't that difficult. I sold to people that were already there and that that were familiar with the work, and so that aspect wasn't that difficult. Tell us how you uh, got um, interested in marketing. Um, I mean, obviously it was to market the practice, but uh, what um, what really got you interested and motivated to uh, uh, really uh, immerse yourself in marketing upper cervical? 
Well, I think mostly um, sailing at it is what really got me immersed in it. Um, I, I just see this from my viewpoint. So many people that, that just sort of follow the we're, we're sort of like sheep, and we just follow along and do what everyone else says, and, and that's very typical in chiropractic. That everybody just does the exact same thing, and, and there's really not a whole lot of innovative marketing. And I think a lot of it is out of fear. People are afraid to say something or put something out there. Um, and I just really struggled during that first year in practice. It was very difficult for me to to really get things going. And, as a, coming out of school as a student, you know, I, I thought that everybody, of course, was going to be excited about this. I was just going to say chiropractic, and people were going to you know, come running, and there was, people were going to come into the office because they wanted to get wellness care. Mm. And I began to see that that wasn't necessarily the case. And then I began to understand that in order to be able to communicate this message, I was going to have to understand how people thought and how people actually you know, looked at what we did. You know, when interesting dynamic is in Costa Rica when you say you're a chiropractor, people don't know what that is until you had the opportunity to tell people what it was. Mm. Versus in the United States when you tell people you're a chiropractor, they automatically think that you crack back. Mm -hmm. And that's an interesting dynamic to then begin to actually ask yourself, where did they get this idea that you crack back? And sometimes when I speak out with chiropractors, they'll actually tell me that it was the medical doctors who told them. But I think that that's I think that's, that's sort of ridiculous to think that a medical doctor on a day-to-day -day basis is sitting in his office telling people that chiropractors crap back. Right. Um, it was the chiropractor that not only told them but demonstrated to them that that's what we did. Mm -hmm. And so then I began to read, um, much like you said, I've read, I've read um, various books on persuasion and also just business books on how to market a business and how to be successful in business. And that's where I began to, to gain insight that chiropractic not only is, is just a, a, a healthcare profession, it's not just that, but it's also a business. And that's also something that's very unique in being a chiropractor versus being a medical doctor. You almost can just go out and say, I'm a medical doctor, and get business um, if you have an office somewhere. But being a chiropractor, um, that is not sufficient just to say that. The other aspect that I find interesting is that chiropractors um, mostly are looking ultimately to be in, in, a, in a sole practitioner point of view to own their own practice. And medical doctors, that may not necessarily be the case as far as being the epitome of what they're trying to achieve. They would probably like to rise to the ranks of um, being a department or a department chair or the chief of, of a department in a hospital or maybe even in, in some sort of a learning institution, their positions of prestige um, don't look necessarily like our positions of prestige. And so one other thing that I, I, I don't think that I've even ever discussed this in any, in, in any interview type form, any public form, is that I'm also a really big fan of reality television. Um, my wife um, has to watch all of these really strange shows with me, but I think there's a lot to learn in those arenas. And one of the, the shows that I found fascinating was a show that was called The Restaurant, um, that followed the the um, business of Rocco Despirito, who was a, a who is a chef, and opened a restaurant, and, I, and it was on NBC, and I believe the intention was to detail um, how the restaurant developed and got going. Well, ultimately, the restaurant sort of ends up failing, and I began to think that it's very interesting that chefs they go to school, they go to culinary art school, and they learn how to be great chefs and. And I've had some experience in my life. Um, I, I can't cook at all, but I've been around people that, that, that have skill in that area. 
And it's amazing the things that they can do with raw ingredients and, and the dishes that they can make. They just have tremendous skill. And they all aspire at Culinary Arts School. The ultimate aspiration is to own your own restaurant. And we all know, I don't know if it's necessarily as high as what we throw out there, but a large percentage of restaurant sales, a significant percentage of restaurants that sell, in my opinion, the reason is is because the chefs that are aspiring to own the restaurant have incredible training on being chefs, but zero training on in business. Mm. And I think that's sort of what came out in that reality program, the restaurant. But what's interesting is that that same thing happens in chiropractic, is that chiropractic students are being trained to be chiropractors. And I think that they don't actually realize that they're just being trained to be chiropractors. And chiropractors all aspire to own their own practice someday. But a lot of times when they make that jump into owning their own practice, they lack the business skills and acumen to actually be able to make those business decisions and, and be able to understand the marketing and all of the things that go into that. And it's because of that that they end up failing, not because they were bad chiropractors. I think that most students that are graduating nowadays have incredible skill in chiropractic and where they're lacking the knowledge is in actually how to run a practice. And, you know, we, we draw a lot of information, again, anecdotally, from a lot of really, in my opinion, really weird sources. So people tell us things like you have to take insurance or you, you, you have to not take insurance or you have to do full spine or you have to do upper cervical or you have to have physical therapy or you have to not have physical therapy. I mean, all of these things, rather than look at it from a business decision, um, we, we, we're sort of trained to sort of latch on to one of these things and then just sort of roll the dice and see if it works. Hmm. And, you know, I think that's that's really a lack of understanding on our part. And so that's where a lot of that that passion from, of mine for the marketing comes from is, is one from my personal experience of having failed. And I, I think that's interesting. If you look back, I don't I don't know of the interviews that you've done, but I would say that that, that also may be a common thread, is that most of the successful chiropractors failed first. In fact, in business, that's also a common thread, that most successful business people failed first. So once you've learned to fail... If you then later succeed, then you also lose that fear of failing because you know that you can do it again. Mm -hmm. So then also to go back and, and grab that question about moving back to the United States, how hard was it? Honestly, it wasn't that difficult because I, I understood the rules of the game. They had slightly different rules. Practicing in the United States looks a little bit different. You have to temper a little bit your the things that you say and the way you approach your marketing. But the people are still people, and, and, and fundamentally the dynamic is exactly the same in any part of the world. Um, people are, are fundamentally looking for something, and then the question is whether or not we can actually find a match and then communicate to them that whatever it is that they're looking for, that we have that. If we can find that match, then there's no convincing to do. There, there's nothing but explaining of what it's going to take on their part to get it. And as long as that's within their reach, then they will execute it. And it's a relatively simple formula. Uh, do you mind telling us some of the uh, uh, business books or authors, uh, marketing uh, authors that uh, you like to read? Well, here's in my teaching, I mean, the staple, the fundamental basis around which almost everything that we start with is, is from Michael Gerber's E Myth Revisited. Um, and on the, the concepts, the conceptual side, the theoretical side of, of our marketing, of how we look at our patients, a lot of that comes from Michael Port's book yourself solid, which is I'm beginning to see is also getting out there, um, hearing more and more people talk about that. That's all an older book, but then his Beyond Book Solid, um, actually Beyond Book Solid sort of mirrors more an e-myth revisited type. It's more of a, 
um, procedural-looking type book. Um, those two books. And then you know, Guy Kawasaki's set of books, um, as far as the way that he thinks, um, the way that he looks at it and understands that basically the successful businesses have been birthed out of people that have gone against the current. Um, I had the opportunity um, not so long ago to hear him speak, and he's a venture capitalist for those that aren't oriented to Guy Kawasaki. And somebody asked him, what are you looking for um, before you invest in, in a certain company? And he said, well, that's very easy. I'm looking for an unproven person or persons with an unproven, unproven product or technology for an unproven market. And, and that was, that's interesting because he, he's saying basically we're going to go against the grain of what everybody else is looking for. But then he said, I want to take you back and I want you to understand where the biggest successes have, have come from. So, for example, um, 10 years, 15 years ago, I can't remember the exact timeline, is that he was approached by someone that told him that, told him that they wanted him to come and work for a, a basically an encyclopedia for web pages that it was going to be a, a, a website that people would go on and they would type stuff in and it would show them other web pages that you know, talked about that. And he told them, that's stupid. <laughs> Who wants that? Um, we would want a, an encyclopedia for web pages. And that company went on to be Yahoo. Mm-hmm. And he says, and then not, even more recently, there were a couple of kids that decided that they were going to create a website where people could post their own videos, their own personal videos, and then people from around the world would probably want to watch them. And likewise, at the time, people thought that was stupid. You, people, you're going to put your videos of Christmas off on the Internet, and people are going to want to watch this, and this company goes on to be YouTube. Mm. And so it's, it's unproven people that nobody knows that have an unproven technology for an unproven market. That's, that's the person that he would be willing to give millions of dollars to. Well, I think that in much in the same way for, for us, I mean, that's sort of what I'm looking for. Um, I, I have said in, in circles, I'm looking to do what no one else is doing just because I have yet to see someone that's doing it so good that it's getting the results that we desire. Hmm. So if, if, if someone's already doing it and not really getting the results that we're looking for, then I don't want to do that. Because, I mean, in the same, same way when patients come in, I don't expect to do what has already been done and think that I can do it better. The thing is, I'm going to do something totally different. So I would imagine that... Uh uh, in this strategy, it, it, it's natural to use TV and radio, and uh, you know you already told us how you got, uh, um, uh, you know, how you did uh, television in Costa Rica. Um, was that uh, was that something in Costa Rica? That first interview was that just kind of something that fell upon you, or were you looking to get on television? Actually, it was my wife. Mm-hmm. She was looking to get me on television. She was she was the one that was responsible for. Um, making that connection, um, you know, making the repeated phone calls, insisting that this was something that they would want to have on their program, and so she got me on that program. And then from that, I, I had I had never been on television, um, but once I got in that that in that atmosphere, I mean, it was something that honestly just sort of came natural to me. Um, before I left, I had my own radio show on on the number one talk radio radio station in Costa Rica Wow! that we did an hour a day and we didn't talk about chiropractic every day we talked about all kinds of different stuff and so it was just just sort of a passion of mine um, I enjoyed it I, en- I enjoyed the, the, the interview from both sides of the equation it was it was a lot of fun to see see it work from you know, 
trying to come up with questions, which is something that I think that people, people too sort of take for granted because you know, the interviewer can make the interview go really bad if they want to. And, and I think a lot of times chiropractors aren't necessarily prepared for that. And so th that's what happens when we end up getting quote-unquote ambushed. Is, you, know, you, you have to be skilled also to be able to be interviewed um, because it, it is sort of a, a power struggle. Um, the interviewer has an idea of where they would like the discussion to go, and obviously you coming in as a chiropractor, you have an idea of where, you'd like to dis where you would like the discussion to go, and you have to sort of have a give and take to try and see who can direct that conversation ultimately to, to get the, their points across. So that was, yeah, that was something that I, I had sort of picked up and, and that I, I really enjoy doing. Uh, do you still do it? I notice that you have some on your site. Is that something that you continue to do? Well, you know, the opportunities here in the United States are, are much more difficult to, to come across. And so I have had the opportunity to be in, uh, invited on a, on a couple television shows. Um, speaking Spanish has also been something that has been advantageous to me, um, uh, to participate in a couple of Spanish-speaking radio interviews, um, and then a couple of English interviews that I've done on, on radio as well. Um, it's much harder to break into that um, sort of atmosphere here in the United States. You know, ultimately, I've, I've said many times, I, my perspective ultimately on the, the whole thing is, is this entire thing is a race to Oprah. And whoever can, the chiropractor who makes it on Oprah first, that will be the prevailing opinion about chiropractic. So whether that be spinal decompression or upper cervical or you know, whatever the, the, the viewpoint is that's presented there, that will, that will automatically socially and culturally become the representation a representative opinion about chiropractic. And so, you know, I, I think that it, it is important, but you can't just call Oprah and get on. I mean, I'm sure that she must have received many requests from chiropractors or people recommending chiropractors to be on that show. And so the recipe to end up there um, looks a little bit different than it does in Costa Rica. Mm -hmm. That's an interesting way to put it. It's that we're all racing to Oprah. Uh, tell us about the uh, commercial that you did with Jerry Rice. Well, actually, that was just sort of um, just sort of luck. I don't know that it was necessarily a casting, but the Federation for Chiropractic Progress had contracted Jerry Rice to um, be their spokesperson for a year, and they um, came on the campus at Life West and sort of um, informally interviewed a couple people, and then and just informed me that they would like for me to. Um, fill that role for them. Um, so it was literally just um, a brief encounter that I had informally, honestly standing in a hallway, and then based on that, there, there were the producers of the commercials and then the representatives from uh, Foundation for Chiropractic Progress, and then informed, can you come tomorrow with several changes of clothes and, and film with Jerry. Um, he came in, and it was it was, it was quite an experience. It honestly was it was something that for, for some reason, even having said so, you know, having been on television in Costa Rica and, and presented in, in front of large groups of people, um, I was very nervous to be with him. And they had to stop several times during our shoot to, to wipe away the, the sweat, the shine that was coming on my face. He was giving me a hard time as he said, hey, is he sweating? Is he sweating? And so I asked him, I said, well, did you sweat when you were on Dancing with the Stars? And he said, yeah, you bet I did. And I said, well, how come you're sweating? He said, because that, that, that's not what I do. I'm a football player. I'm used to being on a big field, and I was dancing in a very small, confined space. I said, well, this isn't what I do either because you're Jerry Rice. <laughs> he started laughing, and 
honestly, that most of the footage that you see on any of the commercials or any of the pictures, that was after that because after that we sort of loosened up and we were talking and, and he actually is a, is a fantastic golfer. Um, he's a single-digit handicap and being from the Bay Area, um, he, uh, he's played many times at the course that I'm a member of and so we began to speak about that and um, it was nice to, to hear his experience with chiropractic and then obviously um, I shared with him what, what we do and, and why that's different. Um, you know, honestly, I, I think that if, if people in the, in the sports world truly understood and could appreciate upper cervical chiropractic, I think that that's, that's probably one of the easiest areas for us to break into um, because they would understand that we're not competing against the orthopedist or their massage therapist or any of these other people that they have on staff that we truly just want to come in and measure nerve function and correct when necessary. Um, I think that that message would be something that would be so easy for a professional athlete or even a professional team to understand. In fact, in Costa Rica, I worked with uh, several first division soccer teams um, and a couple of the players that then eventually played on the national team and, and worked with them. If they understand that you're coming from a performance or a function-based platform versus a, a pain or injury recovery platform, because they're already surrounded by so many people that are, are, are concerned about their injuries, um, then it becomes something that is very easy to integrate. I, I mean, I many times had a player that would say to me, you know, I think I hurt my, my, my knee um, in the practice today, and, and I would tell them, well, you know, that, that very well could be, but I honestly think that you need to take that up with the orthopedist or with the medical doctor, you know, let them take a look at that. And they began very quickly to understand where you fit in. Um, you know, I think for an athlete that, that that's something that's, that's very easy for them to, to capture. And so once we began to have that discussion, you know, things sort of loosened up, and, and it, was, it was a lot of fun working with him. And then, you know, he, he taped those, those different uh, segments that, that you're beginning to see come out. And I know that the Foundation for Chiropractic Progress has very big plans on, on really um, trying to disseminate that information um, and, and get, the, get the repetition and, and get that message out there so as many people as possible see it. And I think that they've done a really good job. It's a very admirable thing to take on. I mean, none of that um, comes cheap. And, you know, I, th I think, too, that initially they might have had a, a message that, that didn't necessarily resonate with the public, just, again, from a marketing standpoint. And then I think that going to the celebrity of Jerry Rice and, and a message that, that might be a little more identifiable with the public. Hmm. Um. I'd like to ask you a little bit about what you just said about uh, um, uh, establishing, you know, what uh, what your place is in the uh, in the market. Is that um, is that kind of a uh, a contrarian approach, like you were talking about before, um, where you know? We will, uh, a lot of times, uh, even if they don't actually say this, uh, we're taught to uh, be all things to all people. You know, we're chiropractors, but in essence, we're taught be all things to all people. And you're saying, listen, I, uh, I get rid of nerve interference. If you want to have this other stuff done, you need to go talk to those guys. Is that kind of part of your uh, contrarian approach to uh, marketing what you do? It's only contrarian in chiropractic, actually. Um, That's my point, you know, actually. Yeah. In, in, in the business world, the specialized model beats the generalized model um, ten times over. There are very few Walmarts. 
very few. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's very difficult for you to come on the scene and compete with Walmart. If you and I decided we're going to launch a bigger and better Walmart, um, we're going to have to have an awful lot of money and a really good plan. Um, it's really hard to compete in that area. On the other hand, if you and I had a technology that we had, let's say, a, a, a telephone and a computer system that was better than Apple, that market's not nearly as hard to get into. The more specialized you are, the easier it is to break into that. And the public um, will take to a specialized model far easier than it will to the generalized model. Um, medicine has understood this, too, and that's one of the things that I have long spoken about, that really coming to the United States is sort of a, 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 a bone that I have with the profession at, at large, is that we are a largely horizontal um, profession. And medicine is a very vertically oriented profession. And what I mean by that is that the, the general public sees medicine as being scaled in a vertical orient orientation. And they understand this vertical orientation. That when they get sick, their first point of contact is always going to be with their general practitioner or their family doctor. And from there, they begin to go up successive orders of superiority and or specia speciality. And as they rise up through those levels, there's also increasing knowledge, increasing skill, and increasing fees. And so you go to a specialist, and the specialist may actually then refer you on to specialized imaging or diagnoses or specialized testing. And then from there, if they can't help you, you may even end up in a specialized center, um, like a Stanford Medical Center or a UCLA or, or a Mayo Clinic. And within Mayo, there's levels of specialty. And the higher, the deeper you go in that, then, then the, the, the greater the level of skill and knowledge and the higher the pay structure. Well, what's interesting is that we aren't smart enough to observe the patient's behavior to understand that once the patient arrives at the cardiologist and receives open-heart surgery, the next time they get sick, they do not go back and jump up to the cardiologist, even though that was ultimately where they found their resolution. They go back down to the first rung and visit the general practitioner. Now, chiropractors, we don't do that. We, we're very horizontal, and, and, and I, I, I speak many times, actually, I think that people really don't know this, but I do a, a continuing education class every other month, which exposes me to approximately 100 full-spine doctors per, per, per session about these concepts, so we, we address some of these concepts. And so I am acutely aware that chiropractors in the field, regardless of whether they're upper cervical or they're full spine, that we get more referrals from medical doctors than we do chiropractors. And that's a shame. That says that chiropractors are afraid to refer to other chiropractors. And when I ask them why, they say because they're afraid they will lose the patient. And the only reason that they would lose the patient is if we actually understood that we were in a, a, a horizontal affiliation. And chiropractors tend, and this is very unfair, tend to, tell, tend to think in their minds that if the patient comes to me and I can't help them, then chiropractic can't help them. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things that I also discuss, you know, even amongst the upper cervical crowd, which I would imagine that's mostly the people that will end up listening to this. It, we have to be clear. We got all excited about the NUCA research that said that NUCA um, was very effective in helping hypertension. Um, and I saw a lot of the upper cervical chiropractors put that out there, but what bothers me is that it gets packaged up as upper cervical helps hypertension. Um, that's not what that research says. Um, the research says that NUCA helps hypertension, and in fact, it doesn't even say that NUCA helps hypertension. It says that Dr. Marshall Dickholz can right. help, help <laughs> hypertension. And if we're, if we're going to go out there, and, you know, and, and regular chiropractors have put this out there, chiropractic helps hypertension. 
But that's akin to having a double-blind study with something like Vioxx and saying that it has been proven to reduce pain and then making the blanket statement that all medicine reduces pain. Mm -hmm. you, you can't make that statement. So Nucum may be particularly effective at hypertension and CBP may be great for elbow pain. And there's nothing wrong with that. We, we all, all always feel, too, that, that, you know, we have to, again, even in the upper cervical world, that upper cervical has to be, that my technique has to be the do-all-things-for-all-people technique. And if it can't, then nothing else can help it. You know, and I, I personally, I disagree with that. I think that we will see with the, with the technology and the research that there's probably some techniques that are more effective for certain conditions or maybe certain populations, if you don't want to be condition-based, than others. And it's just a matter of being objective and saying, listen, so, you know, th this may be true. That also is part of, the, you know, the advent of the upper cervical diplomate program that says that there are other techniques out there and that if you are going to be truly an upper cervical expert, you kind of need to know about all of them, or at least the majority, the, pre the prevailing techniques that are out there. Tell us about um, uh, marketing on the web. Is, uh, is this just another tool, uh, um, or do you see something different about the Internet? The Internet is the wave of the future. I began to become acutely aware of that when I moved to the United States. And, of course, um, you know, you open an office, you're getting a visit from the Yellow Page guy. And Yellow Pages are still, even to this day, quite expensive. And I, I very early on had to have this discussion or thought process with myself. And, and I began to think, you know, how often do we actually go to the Yellow Pages for any sort of information anymore? Um, if... And, you know, and coming out of the college scene and thinking, okay, if, if we said, listen, let's, let's grab a pizza tonight, you go right to the Internet. It's a, it's a Google, Google search to figure out where you're going to get the pizza or what pizza's best or anything of that nature. Um, I began to notice this behavior then, and, it, and it's something that's interesting because it, it permeates through all things that we do. Um, if you look back at your recent big purchases, I would imagine that most of your large purchases you investigated on the Internet prior to actually executing, and then quite possibly some of your recent purchases were actually made over the Internet. And so understanding that, I began to see that people were also turning to the Internet for their health care information. Now, when, when I'm advising young doctors before they open up their practice, I, I tell them there's three areas where I'm going to ask you to just definitely do not cut corners, and that's going to be on your x-ray. Um, to try and cut corners on x-ray, you're going to end up paying for it later on. You're better off just getting whatever the technology is at the time. Um, even in five years' time, we've moved from um, the CR readers into the direct capture being now affordable. So if you're buying in at CR reader today um, and thinking, I'll move to direct capture, by the time you're ready to move to direct capture, it will be something else. I don't know what we're going to do after that, but there will be something else. Um, if, you're, if, you're, if you're coming out into a new office and you're buying plain film, you might as well also buy typewriters in the patient's eyes, in the, in the clinical um, analysis eyes, um, because you're going backwards of the technology that's currently available today. The second area is in your office software, the software that actually runs your, your, your billing and your appointments and all of that. Um, if you ask any doc that's been out in practice what it's like to switch softwares, and so a lot of times people will buy a cheap one, run it for five years, and then upgrade into the one that they, you know, that they always wanted. Um, sometimes if they have front office staff, um, they're not acutely aware of this, but that's never fun. If you want to really make your staff not like you, switch your office software and see how that goes. And the third area is your web page. Um, I know that when, when 
we ask people for referrals and they tell other people about us, that, that third party that receives that information, the first thing they do is go on the web and they, they learn about you. Um, when they type your name in, you want all of your stuff coming up on that page. And they're going to get a lot of information about you just off the Internet, and they're actually going to decide whether or not they're going to become a patient based on that experience. And so that is critically important. I ask, I ask young doctors, do not try and make your own web page. Get a web page that's professionally done and that communicates the message that, that you're trying to communicate. I think the best example of this is that the day of the close is now gone, that people no longer go into a, a sales situation to be closed. And I think that's important for us to understand at a report of findings. When you go to buy a new car, that, that purchase has been so researched that the person that walks on the car lot already knows exactly which car, model, and extras that they're going to want, and they know how much that they're going to ask for that even though they haven't even seen the car on the lot. And they know how much they're willing to offer, and that, that has already been played out in their head from their living room or from their bedroom or from their office, wherever they were on the Internet. So one of the important things for us to understand is that when the patient walks into the door of our clinics, they were already sold on getting chiropractic care. And if we do stuff that makes them get unsold, then they will not be patients. And as long as we live up to their expectations, they will. It's an, it's an easy, again, it's an easy formula. But we have to have a resource where we're giving, this, this, giving them this information. And so one is the web page, and then another area where they can become just personally familiar with you is through social media, through things like Twitter and Facebook and LinkedIn. That's an area where they can sort of become personally involved with you from the outside and outside looking in. And that's another very important decision for people when choosing a doctor. They, they like to feel like the doctor is human, not just a machine, and that's a way that they can actually sort of look into your your being and, and see, you know, do I resonate with this person? Oh, he likes golf. Well, I like golf too. Or, you know, we have some interests in common. I feel like, you know, he's honest. I, I had I had a patient one time tell me it was it was very interesting. He brought his daughter in, and I had played golf with him. And he said, you know why I brought my my I had played golf with him many times. He said to me, you know why I brought my daughter into you? I said, well, I imagine because she was really sick and. You thought she needed help. And he said, well, that too. But honestly, it's because many times on the golf course, I've seen you get yourself in some really tricky situations. Um, so <laughs> that sort of speaks to my golf game. <laughs> he said, but one thing I noticed is that you never cheat. <laughs> and so I, I figured that if you are a person of integrity on the golf course, that you would behave yourself in the same manner in your office. Wow. And so if you understand, see, that's, although that was not an electronic, electronic transaction, that's the power of social media. The people are beginning to look at you and begin to see what you do and what you say and then begin to, begin to decide whether or not they trust that you would be an effective and good doctor, whether or not the recommendations you're giving them are based on their actual need or based on your need. How much time would you say you spend uh, updating uh, your blogs and Twittering and doing all that? Wow, that's a that's a tough one. Cause I don't want to give away all my secrets. But very little time. <laughs> um, Darren Darren White recently wrote on his blog um, at ownyourdreampractice.com on his blog about the power of being able to outsource mm -hmm. a lot of these things. And so I have a tremendous team um, of people that that do help me. I, I I do the creative, and then beyond the creative. 
all of the, you know, you have to be engaging your, your, your Twitter and your Facebook, um, cleaning up your followers and making sure that you follow the people that follow you. Um, I've assigned that to, to outside people. Um, so I, I utilize a tool called TweetDeck, which links um, Twitter and Facebook. And so I'll go on, you know, maybe five or ten minutes a day and, and post stuff on there. And then the rest of it, um, you know, other people are helping me clean up. Even on, on the blog side, um, you know, I have uh, writers that will help me to edit and make sure that what we're putting up sounds right um, and, and it's clean and all of that, that it's, it's punctuated. And so I don't have to spend too much time on it. I think that in, in that world, um, the frequency is, is the important factor. Um, it's, much, it's much like the old concepts of direct mail. Um, people would say that it, it, would, it was a ten, the 10-month 10 rule, that after 10 months, people had even forgot that they even knew you. And so you, you know, regularly in direct mail, they would want to direct mail someone once a month. Um, we try to get our doctors to put at least three posts out a day, um, just so that people are knowing that you're still alive. If you disappear for a long period of time, it's really hard to revive yourself. You basically are starting over again. And I've seen that a lot of doctors that get fired up and they, they, they're on there on Twitter and they're posting, you know, seven consecutive days and then they disappear for a month. Well, when they show back up after a month, people don't even remember that stuff that you were writing, you know, a month ago. You're really starting over. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what uh, uh, is really nice about Twitter is, you know, it's 140 characters. That's all people expect. And, uh, you know, you can... Um, you can use it just to uh, develop relationships like you're talking about. Uh, you can also direct people to uh, information. Um, I, I love Twitter. Uh, it, that's basically what we look at is um, the, we give them a, a personal. Of the three that, that we like to see is a personal, um, something that you're doing, opens yourself up a little bit. Um, we like to see them direct them to some sort of information, but like more on the marketing side, like direct them to our clinic's webpage or um, a, a webpage about an event that we're holding. And then we lastly like to direct them towards information that's useful to them. Mm-hmm. Those yeah. are the three that we like to try and get in. If you go past that, then you can put whatever you want, but that's sort of our, our baseline minimum that we try to put out there. Uh, Brandon Harshi had a uh, his article that uh, he posted today was uh, about frequency of posting and um, you know he's done very good about uh, uh, sticking to a schedule and uh, it's really served him well uh, because um, uh, he you know he's going to update his page, so you go back because you know it's going to be updated. And I don't know if you've uh, uh, heard of uh, Gary Vaynerchuk. Do you know who I'm talking about? The wine. name sounds familiar, yes. He's the wine library TV guy. Okay, yes. He says that the only reason why he is uh, at the level that he's at is purely because uh, between 4 o'clock and 7 o'clock every single day he put a video online, and that's it. Nothing else special about what he does. It was just the fact that he was consistent and frequent. Mm-hmm. Um, well, tell us a little bit. Uh, you, you've kind of done this, but I didn't know if there was something uh, else that you uh, wanted to talk about. But tell us about your uh, coaching program. Coaching program, that's um, an interesting piece of our business model. Um, our coaching program developed actually out of the training that I did with my business partner, whose name is Paige Van Sluten. Um, she 
was training at the college with me. She was the first intern that ever worked at the Institute for Advanced Care and Chiropractic, where I work at the, at the college. And based on that relationship, um, I asked her if she would like to be in partnership with me in opening a, a private clinic, because I would need someone that could um, dedicate that time to be there and run the clinic. And so um, she had said yes, and she basically only discovered upper cervical in, in the last, say, the last six months or so, nine months of her, her chiropractic academic career. So I began um, a training process to teach her how to do um, what I did. And she recognized that there was a value in that and that a lot of people really wouldn't be exposed to that and, and began to sort of create this program on her own. She was, she was taking her experience with me and, and developing it into a program and then we had discussions about that that would be valuable, that we should put that out there. Um, and so we did. We, we put together this program and, and have been offering it now. This is our third year. Um, but it's very different because I've also been exposed to almost all of the other um, technique programs that are out there, especially in the knee, chest, solid, headpiece world. And so our program is a year-long program. Um, once we moved to a year, that, that began, began to become more of a, a trend. Um, but I'm pretty sure that we were the first ones to go to the year program. And not only that, it's, a, it's an interview um, application program. So it's not a come whenever you want. It has a definite start and finish point. And, and typically we start in January, and it goes for one whole year, and there's 12 meetings. In between each meeting, as we develop your, your knowledge base, there's homework. And, and we're very proud of the fact that we utilize a lot of technology in order to do this. And so our students come from different areas of the country. We meet, um, we train, and then we then have discussions through a, a member's forum. We post their homework there. We're also able then to post digital x-rays and pattern analyses and, and have discussions about their, their, their questions and what they're going through, and they're able to work as a group like that. And then they come back and then we have discussions and then further their development. The other very unique aspect of the program is that we hired a personal trainer to take a look at specifically um, the adjustment that we did, and then we developed a, a personal or physical training program to help the chiropractor to develop their bodies in the way that, that was necessary in order to do the work. Hmm. And one of the things that comes out of my passion is I've noticed, and in fact this week I heard some interesting discussions that Tiger Woods, over the course of time, has built his body into a golfer's body, and it's actually um, sort of a unique-looking body because he has an enormous back, and he has very small pecs, and that's what allows him to get that very big shoulder turn that he creates. His pecs don't get in the way, and he's built himself that way. That's sort of, he, he looked at what he did, and then he said, this is how I need to be built. And when we then think, at least in the Nietzsche-solid headpiece world, what, does, what do I need to build my body into? Um, when we look at the body drop component, that's, that's all core. And so we do a ton of core training. Then we have pecs and triceps, but not in a large. We don't want to have large musculature. We need to have fast musculature. And so our training is designed at that. And so we train every time that they come on a monthly basis. We teach them a little more to their training regimen. And so they also train in between programs. As we're trying to build their bodies in a way that will actually allow them to do not only the adjustment once, but repeatedly. That's the thing, too, is you don't want to get tired if you're going to be doing 100 or hopefully 200 of these adjustments in a day, we don't want those last adjustments of the day to not be as good because you know, your, your muscles are beginning to tire and fatigue. And so we have that aspect in it as well. We also then meet yearly 
Um, we have a, a year, yearly get-together where we, where we sit down and sort of update everybody on where we're at. One of the things, too, uh, hopefully, um, just out of this discussion, you know, you're able to appreciate is that our teaching is not a, a stagnant teaching. Um, I don't think that I have the answers, and this is the way that it is, and we're constantly modifying um, our view on things. In fact, this year we made a radical change um, that we're going to be announcing in July where we have moved away from the, the AP open mouth, and even our x-rays are oftentimes under a lot of uh, criticism. But we, use, we utilize AP open mouth, and then we do, use, we do shoot AP open mouth and right and left lateral flexion and right and left rotation, and we look at the x-rays from a, a dynamic, a functional um, biomechanical point of view. But we also then, if we're looking at it from a biomechanical point of view, began to question what the opening of the mouth would do to the actual normal biomechanics in the upper cervical spine. And so now we've begun to develop a protocol for shooting nasiums in right and left lateral flexion and right and left rotation. Hmm. And we then announce those changes every year when we all get together, and, and, and that's what's called synapse, that we're having that actually in July, and everybody comes together. That's also one that, that's something that's open to the public. You don't have to be a, a coaching program member to be at that. Um, we bring in speakers. In fact, you know, a lot of the things that we've talked about today, we're going to be covering at Synapse. Another one of our, we're going to have Joe Dispenza talk all day Saturday, and then on Sunday we're going to have Sumaya, who, is a, who works at Sun Microsystems and actually runs their social media area at Sun Microsystems, and she's going to be t talking to us about the next step. What is, what is out there beyond Twitter and Facebook? Where should we be looking for where we're going after that so that we can sort of stay on the front edge of that? I know you were on Twitter, too, very early, but now the, the amount of people on Twitter is overwhelming, mm -hmm. and your competition to, to, to be able to penetrate your message is, is very high, and so we're, we're already beginning to look to see what the next thing will be. And so Sumaya is going to talk to us about what she feels is coming on the horizon and where should we should be focusing our attention. And so that's sort of our, our coaching program. We also had a lot of interest this year, that, and we, we limit our class to 20, so it's 20 maximum. And this year we had so much interest from people over the course of the year that we're actually going to be taking a new class um, in August. And so if anybody is interested in that, um, I will have up probably in the next week or so information on the application process. And the website for the coaching program is www.thatsomething.net. So that will be open there. It's for students or, or doctors. Um, they're able to go in there. And that's sort of the first step, too, towards what we talked about at the very beginning, is then we have a licensing program. Once you've gone through the coaching and you understand what it is we do and how we look at this, um, then that's then what can get you into the ability to enter into our licensing development um, either opening your clinic or you opening a clinic with our with our help and getting it up and running and, and administration of it. And so that that's that second second sort of piece of the pie to what we do on the business side. And I don't know if that was part of the before we started taping, but that's honestly what what then engulfs most of my time on a day to day basis is that 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 is that one to one contact with those clinics and the development of then the the procedures and protocols and, and the marketing that they're using. Um, and implementing in their clinics in order to keep everything sort of uniform. Um, that's probably one of the most thorough coaching programs I've ever heard described. <laughs> well, that you know, honestly, that was what we were trying to do. Um, as I looked out there, one, doing upper cervical, most chiropractic consulting services were not upper cervically oriented, and the running of an upper cervical office is very different than the running of a full spine office. 
the languaging, the interactions, everything is very different. And we have this very difficult thing that we have to overcome, and that's the fact that they're not going to get adjusted every time that they come in. And we must begin to lay that groundwork and understanding from, from the initial exam. And so that was, that's one thing. And the other thing is the, the program also is technique-specific, you know, because I also recognize that um, there, there, is, there are idiosyncrasies between doing one technique and the other and the way that we're going to manage and approach the patient that way as well. Um, I have been getting a ton of exposure to a lot of the other techniques, and I hope that someday we will be able to translate these concepts out into the other techniques as well. But for us, our, our vision definitely, and I think, too, sometimes upper cervical doctors get a little upset with me for this statement as well, but I don't think that upper cervical is for every chiropractor because we talked about the vertical model. But I also don't think that this technique is for every upper cervical doctor, and I think it's perfectly fine. Um, my idea isn't to capture and dominate and make everybody do one particular technique or even one particular system, but rather to master this that we're doing. Um, and I think that that's one of the key things that we need to, to understand is that we just need to be masters, and it's what you had said about the, the specialization model. We need to be masters and really good at what we're doing um, because that's then going to be the, our path to success. And so our program literally is set up um, in a very specialized way around one single thing. And a lot of people say, well, do you coach full-spine docs? And, you know, the answer is no. But I don't feel I, – not, not that I don't feel bad about it, but that's just the answer to it. Um, the same way when a patient calls and says, do you take insurance, I mean, we just tell them no. I don't, there's no justification. We just happen to not. Right. We also don't receive payment in pesos. It's just, <laughs> it's just how it is. Yeah. <laughs> well, what is the um, uh, most significant or most important business or financial discovery you've made in the past year? Wow, the most important business or financial discovery that I've made. Um, you know, I think it's an understanding of the model that will, you know, I, I guess I can sum it up this way. As a single practitioner, you are limited in, in how much money you can make financially by how many patients you can serve in a day. And that the real key to financial freedom in chiropractic is not in back-end sales or passive income. Um, but your true passive income in chiropractic comes from you being able to teach young chiropractors to do what you do and then benefit from that teaching rather than benefit long-term by taking a piece of what they make for the rest of their lives. Um, and this is something that, that quite frankly, um, Darren White taught me um, through his Own Your Dream practice model and understanding how he looks at the launching of a, of a practice. And we were on a, on a very similar path. I think that's a lot of the reason why he and I resonate so well together is that um, independently we were on a very similar path, and the, the, the part that he had was the part that I didn't have, and the part that I had was the part that he didn't have. And we were able to sort of, um, thankfully, we, we were not um, egotistical enough to, to say, I'm not going to tell you what I'm doing. And when we were able to sit down and sort of see what each other was doing, we were able to sort of gain clarity on how we could actually do it better. And out of that actually um, um, developed something that I, 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 you haven't asked about it, but I think it's probably because you don't know about it, um, a, a great new um, project that we're working on together that's called Kaizen Wellness, which is an online wellness platform that's very social media looking. And what that will allow the chiropractor to do is to enroll their patients into this Facebook for wellness, in essence, but have constant regular contact with them. It's a very sophisticated system. 
um, that Darren had begun to create, and then um, I sort of came in the picture, and, and we sort of helped to finish it out, and we then decided uh, or looked at um, you know, a launch and a marketing of this, and so this is in its, its pre-marketing stage. But I think that this is going to be something that will be very significant for chiropractors as a whole um, here in the next probably six months because our patients are very used to this interface. And a patient that comes once a month, this patient can now have a daily interaction with you as the chiropractor. But like we discussed, too, that doesn't mean you getting on a computer. That means them getting on their computer. In fact, there's already an iPhone and a BlackBerry app where they can just go on and just sort of report what they're doing in their, in their wellness and lifestyle goals. And these are goals that were created and set by them. The doctor can also create goals for them or for their entire patient database. And so that will be very interesting, too, because then um, doctors can encourage their patients towards certain lifestyle decisions without having to address it singularly every, to, to every single patient in the adjusting room. And the other really nice thing about that when we began talking about the financial aspect of this is that it will actually, the wellness platform will move the back-end sales out of the chiropractor's office, which I, I know for a lot of people, for me personally, that's quite uncomfortable. I'm going into a chiropractor's office and they're selling you all these things, and, and it's really to increase their OVA, their office visit average, and their bottom line. And we're able to set that off into cyberspace and allow the patient to arrive at these decisions. So if you are selling things, um, then they could have that interface online based on their own decisions that these are needs that they have. And so all of your recommendations can be there. I also personally, I don't, I don't disagree that, you know, they should have a proper pillow, that they should have proper nutrition, that they should have a proper mattress, um, that they should wear proper shoes, and that they should do exercise. Those are all given. But I find it very difficult to, to place that in my adjusting room. And so the, the platform will also answer that for them. And, and the last thing that I really think would be very interesting is there's a provider dashboard that will give you a pulse of what your patients are thinking and doing. And I know for me and, and, and the marketing side that I work on, we have two classes every month, and we try to give unique and, and different classes. We do classes on nutrition or exercise. And a lot of times we'll bring in specialists on stress relief, and we'll bring in people from the community to talk to our patient base about these wellness concepts. But I often wonder whether or not those are things that my patients even want to know about. And the platform will allow, through their interactions and their answers to questions and what their participation is, will allow me to understand the things that are actually important to them. Maybe the majority of them are trying to lose weight. Or maybe I have a significant amount of my patients that are trying to stop smoking. And a stop smoking class would be actually be far more beneficial to them than a lifting properly class. And so I think a lot of times, too, chiropractors are out there teaching the, their patients the things that they like versus actually addressing the needs of the patient. And so this platform is, is, is quite sophisticated. I think that once people are able to see it and see what it's going to mean for the chiropractic practice, especially given the fact that our patient base is already, and I, I saw a statistic the other day that 5% of all Americans are on Twitter, which may not seem like a lot, but when you think about it, that 5%, that's our demographic. Because in order to be on Twitter, you at least have to have a computer. <laughs> you have to be able to articulate a message in 140 characters or less. So we're talking about educated people with resources to be able to, to purchase, at least at, of some economic status. And that's, that's going to be for the cash practice, cash chiropractic practice. That's sort of our target demographic. So if we're setting them out on this other online platform and allowing them to have an interface with the doctor and grow their lifestyle, their wellness lifestyle through this, and this is something that's comfortable and regular to them, 
this will become an invaluable tool to the chiropractor being able to understand his patient base and then ultimately grow his practice based on what it is that they're doing. So I would say that, that those two things, to answer the question again, is to understand how that whole thing interfaces all the way from student all the way up to successful practice and the tools that are necessary along the way, um, being coaching program, being um, a training program once the student gets out versus an associateship, taking a student into a training program, launching them into their own practice that they're eventually going to be able to have or hopefully from day one maybe they'll have it on their own, more of a mentorship model where I benefit through the training and then they benefit through their work. Um, I think that that's, that's been a significant um, breakthrough for me and in, in my understanding of how, how this works. And I've sort of modeled myself after that. That's, that's what caused me to, to have to make a shift in my time out of the patient attention role into more of a, a development and mentor role. If you had to start over from scratch knowing what you know now, what would you do differently? Wow, you know what? I, I would honestly, honestly say nothing. That's a good answer. That is, that is a good answer, and nobody's ever given me that answer. <laughs> well, it, all, of the, all of the stuff that I've done which has been bad has made me who I am today. Amen. Yeah. And I would just have to say not do those things, but if I didn't do those things, I wouldn't, have this, I wouldn't be in the position I am today. Amen. <laughs> That's, That's a great answer. I didn't like it at the time. That wasn't fun, eating the rice and beans. And yep. so if you asked me that then, I would have said, not this. But, <laughs> right. But looking back on it, without that, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not where I am today. Yeah. What advice, uh, other than uh, what, you've already, uh, uh, what you've already given, what advice would you give students just starting out in their career? Just starting out in the practice, or starting out in their academic career? Uh, just starting out. Uh, well, let's let's start. Uh, say, uh, students just starting chiropractic school. Just starting chiropractic school is that there's no hurry. No matter what you do, you cannot graduate any faster than what it takes to graduate. Um, for for some reason, first quarter or first trimester students feel this urgent need to understand chiropractic tomorrow. And it, it, it's just not possible. And, and it actually frustrates me, too, to hear practitioners and, and people in the field tell students to get your hands on as many people as possible. Um, there's no rush. I think that you need to get your hands on people once you actually understand and have the confidence to put your hands on people. And prior to that, you need to have the understanding and confidence to know that anything that you do when you don't know would be detrimental. Um, so my advice is to, just to, to relax. There's such a, such a race, there's such an urgency in the student body to, to define themselves by their technique and, 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 and be, have, the, have a chiropractic identity. And I, don't, I just think that that's absolutely not necessary. The way I, I, I like to teach the students is that they must develop first their philosophy, then they have to find an objective criteria. And what that means is, is a way to measure and determine whether or not somebody is subluxated and whether or not they need to be adjusted or not, and then after the adjustment, whether or not you've actually accomplished what you said you did. Um, so once you have that, then you take that and you shop it against every technique you can find in the world, not just upper cervical. You shop it against everything, and you find the technique that best satisfies your criteria. And once you have that, now you have a good match. You have a congruent model that we can actually go out and market and be successful with. Uh, most students marry the technique, and because they marry the technique, they adopt their objective criteria and, by default, their philosophy. And that's completely upside down. That's an upside down triangle. You can tip that over easily. 
people will say, well, why do you do it this way? Well, because Dr. So-and-so said. You know, that, that, that's, not, that's not a good answer. For the chiropractor going out, I mean, it's, it's honestly almost the same way. I was speaking to a, 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 young, a young doc today who's about to open his practice. Um, my, my number one thing to them is you have got to know, and this is right out of, right out of Book Yourself Solid from Michael Port, starting point for this whole deal is to know who your tar target audience is. Um, all of the great marketers who are just in marketing, non-chiropractors, marketers who I know, when you go into an interaction with them to market anything, the first question they always ask is, who are we marketing to? It is never, what are we marketing? In fact, they could care less if they're good. They could care less what it is as long as they understand who they were talking to. And so the, the chiropractors were, you know, where do I set up my office? Well, that depends who you're marketing to. Um, should I have high overhead or low overhead? That depends who you're marketing to. All of these questions, the decisions that you have to make getting out into practice, even how should I market, that depends who you're marketing to. If you have an all-insurance practice, um, then that marketing looks very different than an all-cash practice. But an all-cash practice at $30 a visit looks very different than an all-cash practice at $85 a visit. So all of that is all predicated on who your target is, understanding your target. That's the other thing, too, that I, I just drives me crazy is I think chiropractors think that for some reason our job is to go out and convince everyone to get under chiropractic care. And one of my things is that chiropractic is for everybody, but not everybody is ready to get under care today. And we have to begin to understand that. I'm looking, when I go out and I have a social interaction or when I'm out in, in public or in the community, I'm looking for a very particular person. And because we've done the homework on developing our target, I recognize them when I see them. And anybody else, I know that I don't, I don't need to invest a large amount of time in trying to convince them to become a patient because they don't even fit my target. They, don't, they won't be a good match inside my clinic. Um, so I'm looking for a, a, a definite person, and this is a relationship that we're trying to develop. And so you know, I'm looking for a, a type of person that will resonate with the experience that we give in our office. And, and to bring people that don't resonate with that experience, that, that's not going to be good for them nor for me. I, one of my other things is that I, I think there are so many people out there already, and even amongst my colleagues in the upper cervical world, sometimes I disagree with, our, with their approach to this. I think that there are already so many people in the public that already resonate with our message, but the only thing is that they don't know what we do, that we don't need to be spending time trying to convert people from one way of thinking to another, that the allopathic group of people that, that think in an allopathic way do not need to be converted. They are already indoctrinated into the allopathic way. And we get so upset and emotional and disgusted about that. But that's just the way that they think. Um, you know, that's like if we look at it, you know, from a religious standpoint, the people that, 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 have, that are Muslim are not trying to think like the Christians. They're just not trying to. It's not, it, it, you, we can't get upset about that. It's just the way that they think. But meanwhile, there's a lot of people that already have a mindset that is, that is ripe to listen to the message of Christianity, but they don't even know what it is. And when you tell someone about it and it resonates with what they were looking for, then you can see that light up in their eyes and you have that connection. There's so many people out there that are sick of the allopathic model and that are looking for solutions, and the problem is, is that we're not dedicating our marketing and our efforts to go and find them. What we're trying to do is bash these other people over the head to convince them to think the way that we think. And I think that that's, that's an incredible waste of time and energy on our part. And that's what gets these chiropractors so riled up, and, and, and we get so impassioned by it, and then we go out, and then we look worse. 
Meanwhile, if all we did was find someone that was looking for this and tell them, you know what, I'm actually a doctor of the nervous system. The nervous system controls everything in your body. You'll see their eyes light up. Boom, you have a match. This person needs no convincing. Mm -hmm. they, they had convinced themselves long ago, and they were just waiting for you to show up. Mm -hmm. um, man, I wish I would have known you when I was in school. <laughs> um how uh, how would you like people to describe your contribution to upper cervical chiropractic? My contribution to upper cervical. As you know, for me, I think that what would be really nice at the end of all of this, if 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 by the time that this that my story is is written, that we've actually seen we've seen upper cervical sort of come back to the field. Um, I took a lot of heat two years ago because I kind of felt like upper cervical was trying to break away from the field. Um, I want the general public, when we say chiropractic, to think doctor of the nervous system. Um, I don't necessarily think that, that all of us in the upper cervical specific world need to feel like we need to push our full spying colleagues um, away from us in the horizontal model versus to create some level of of superiority, and I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean just to, to create an understanding that what we're doing is looking at the nervous system, but not from a generalized point of view, but from a focused point of view in the upper cervical spine. Um, you know, honestly, that, that's why my effort in the Council for Upper Cervical Care and the Diplomate Program, because ultimately that's what I think that will accomplish, is that we will, we will be able to get to a point where someone that is a diplomate in upper cervical care, that the general public will understand what that means. And what that means is you're a chiropractor. We, I don't want to let go of that label because I, my degree says doctor of chiropractic. That we're a chiropractor but who specializes in the understanding and the function of the unique nature of the neurology of the upper cervical spine. And that if you have a certain condition, um, you know, it may respond to just regular chiropractic. But if it doesn't, don't throw out chiropractic until you've tried upper cervical. That would be that would be what I would like to see that we gain. So we need to gain back that closeness again, where, where we're not the you know the, the, the nasty stepchild that you know what, what happened to us. Like we, we're not even part of chiropractic sometimes. You know, I feel like we're we and I feel like a lot of times we sort of foster that. Um, we need to be able to create a, a closeness with our fellow chiropractors, but at the same time ma maintain our distinctness that says that you know what we do is just different. It, it, it may not necessarily even be better, honestly, um, for all things. It's just different. So for some things, you need upper cervical when other things won't respond. And for other things, I'm sure that just a regular chiropractic intervention would be perfectly fine for that. Um, you know, I, I don't think that we, we, should, we should act like anything else that anybody's doing is, is, is not good because I, I personally disagree with that. If... Uh doctors want to get in touch with you, um, what, uh, how, how, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, you've already given out the uh, website for uh, That Something Coaching. Is there any other contact information you'd like to give out? Well, sure. On, on our website, so information about our clinics around the country is at www.thespecific.com. Um, my personal website, currently doing a redesign on that, but depending on when you visit it, you may see the new design is www.shondill.com. And on there I have basically every resource that if you if you hear me lecture, 
um, and you know that you you asked about a couple books. All of those books are listed on on the website. Anything that I'm using or anything that I feel is of value, um, tools in the clinic, all of that's listed on my website there. Um, and my email address is just simply Sean at thespecific.com. So that's probably actually the best way to, to, to get me. I'm sort of on the move a lot. Um, and so if you just shoot me an email, um, I try to respond to that. I know that you can probably speak to, to the contrary, but I, I try to be pretty good about that. Well, this has uh, been one of the meatiest interviews I've ever done. I really appreciate it.